Welcome everyone to episode 128, Targeting Pediatric Kidney Cancer. I'm Dr. Kiki, here with Dr. Daylon James, and this is The Stem Cell Podcast. All right, everyone, welcome back to The Stem Cell Podcast, brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies. Thank you so much for tuning in. How's it going over there, Daylon? This time of year, there's a chill in the air, Keeks, and I'm feeling it in my kidneys. How are you feeling? <laughs> kidneys! I'm feeling great. There is a little chill in the air, but it is nice here in Portland. We have nice 70-degree weather. It's warm in the afternoons. I'm watching leaves fall to the ground as my roses still bloom. Wow. It's a confusing time of year right now, actually. Oh, glorious. <laughs> I'm jealous. And I'm envious. I'm angry. I get depressed at the call, so I'm oh. not looking forward. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I like I like it. Wrap up, warm beverages, sweaters, I don't know, hay rides. <laughs> White <Nothing>. people. <laughs> I know it's very 1950s kind of <laughs> <laughs> kind of imagery here. Yeah. Okay, but let's move beyond that. We are in modern times. We are in a new millennium that has so many discoveries for us. Let's get down to stem cell business. Make sure all of you check out our website, stepcellpodcast.com, where you can not only subscribe to our newsletter, but also find all of our past episodes and other great resources. You can also follow us on social media at Stem Cell Podcast on Twitter, Stem Cell Podcast on Facebook. And I mean, if you're listening, you should be subscribed. But if you have not subscribed yet, or you know somebody who would benefit from this podcast, tell them to find us and subscribe to us on iTunes and Stitcher so that they can get new episodes automatically downloaded to their devices. All right, we have a great show today. In addition to all of our science news, stem cell news, we have an amazing guest. And our guest today is Dr. Benjamin Deckel, a leading investigator in the field of human renal stem cell biology and regenerative medicine. Yes, Dr. Deckel is one of the pioneers. Maybe you could even credit him with the first conceiving the idea of taking fetal cells and using them to make organs. So I can't wait to get to that. But first, Stem Cell Technologies would like to introduce podcast listeners to another one of the 20 weekly Connexon Science newsletters. You know this one, guys, already, but I'm going to remind you, Cancer Stem Cell News summarizes the latest research on the identification, proliferation, and differentiation of cancer stem cells, and the development of anti-cancer therapies. We're going to hear a bit about that today from Dr. Deckel. This free newsletter also covers recent industry news, policy, events, and jobs in the field of cancer stem cell research. So subscribe at cancerstemcellnews.com. Kiki, I can't wait to get on with some of this news. It's some pretty exciting news this week, that's for sure. First up, big story. Researchers publishing in Cell Stem Cell on October 11th have been trying to produce mice with two dads. You know, we're going back to that old movie, My Two Dads or whatever. I don't know. There was something like that. But researchers have really done this. They've taken father's male stem cells and used them to produce embryos that were then implanted into surrogate mothers. They had to edit the animal's genes to be able to get them to the point where they would mature and allow the pups to be born. But the big caveat here is really the discovery is 
even though they could do it, they edited the genes and they got some embryos, it was really not successful because they've just realized that all the genes are not there in the male genome alone for healthy offspring. In this effort, they used CRISPR-Cas9 to get rid of three imprinted regions. These are methylated regions of the chromosomes near important genes. And they used 210 embryos to implant in surrogate mothers. About 14% were born out of uh, when two mothers were used. However, using stem cells from two male mice, where they snipped out six imprinted pieces of DNA, only 1.2% of the embryos made it to birth. But there were problems in the health of those pups. They were twice the size of normal pups, and they died soon after birth. When they tried even more snipping using these molecular scissors, they got rid of another imprinted region, and they got pups of a normal size, so the growth and uh, development was better, but only two pups survived more than 48 hours, and neither survived to adulthood. So, so far, it's only been successful to use stem cells from mothers to produce pups. Not surprising. That's my takeaway from this, is that women, when they take over the earth, it's going to be much easier for them to, you know, implement their goals of completely eliminating <laughs> males. They won't even need to cryopreserve sperm. They will just totally annihilate us, and then the world will probably be a better place. But the other thing I think is funny is that, you know, we're probably never going to apply this for human but it circles around to I was making a big A of myself talking about how we're never going to do be able to clone these white rhinos. But I feel like this is that they could get on with that right away now with this imprinting thing to try and rescue some endangered species. So another way where I spoke too soon. I'm never going to live that down. <laughs> I think the application of this exactly to help endangered species survive. I mean, it'll be clonal populations. You're going to end up with populations that are females only, and that has its own drawbacks. But women, female parts of many species are known to parthogenetically reproduce. So female fish, lizards, other animals, that side of the sexes does this on its own in nature. So I'm not too surprised that this is the direction that the results seem to be headed, but it is interesting. We'll see where it goes. Right now, it's still in a laboratory, in a dish, and all that kind of stuff. Speaking of things in dishes, we want to look at little tiny things with microscopes, right? There is a new microscope on the scene, a new microscopic technique published in Cell in October 11th issue. Researcher Katie McDole, who is a developmental biologist at Howard Hughes Medical Institute's Janiella Research Campus in Ashburn, Virginia, and her colleagues used this new and improved microscope using a laser to monitor the development of organisms. So it's not just the cell that they're looking at, but organismal development with this new technique that incorporates a light sheet. This is an ultra-thin laser that illuminates not just a spot or a single cell, but a section of a specimen. While cameras are able to record the illuminated 
spots. And Dalen, you were saying you had looked at some of the videos and images that are available online through the published article. Can you describe those a little? Whoa, that's all I can say. It's like, <laughs> whoa, you got if you have access, get on there and look at them. Because, you know, it's, it's interesting you paired these two stories together because the first one we're taking stuff that was usually confined to, you know, lizards and fish with the parthenogenesis and applying in the mammalian kingdom. And here we're taking imaging that you would only ever see in like transparent, like embryos that develop in pond water, like xenopus or zebrafish. And you're able to illuminate these embryological processes that are taking place in the black box of the uterus, you know, in implantation, the, the placenta, you know. So the images that you see there paired with these lineage tracers, it really shows you pretty much all the germ layers segregating, germ cells being induced and then migrating. You see the heart field develop and then you see the heart start beating in the mm. live image. It's nuts, yeah. Kiki. And the amount of time they were able to observe these mouse embryos over many, many hours, it really illuminated these embryological processes that we'd inferred but never directly observed. So this is, I think, going to be a, a major watershed in the field of embryology in mammals because we're going to be able to see things in real time that we were never able to before. Yeah. And this is, in effect, like a video camera for organismal development. And I cannot wait to see these videos on the next Nova PBS special, you know, <laughs> oh, <laughs> the yeah. development of the mouse, you know, it's going to be a, it's going to be some kind of a video series at some point, but this is so much more than that because there is that observational aspect to science where you, like you said, we infer stuff, we think it works a particular way, but we haven't actually seen it. And this is shedding light on those previously invisible processes. Moving on up, this last week, the International Panel on Climate Change issued a report. And in that report, they said, hey, guys, can't we all work together and really try not to hit two degrees Celsius in warming? Because if we do hit two degrees Celsius in warming, it's really going to have negative consequences that we're not going to like. So let's try and dial it back and really, really work on that one and a half degrees of warming as opposed to the larger amount. They said, hey, guys, hey, guys. And <laughs> some of the, the, the most important effects of two degrees Celsius of warming, according to the international, the IPCC, International Panel on Climate Change, is the virtual extinction of corals, coral reef corals. They, they say at two degrees of warming, that almost 99% of corals will go extinct. If we stay at one and a half degrees Celsius, they estimate that only 60 to 70% of corals will die out. And corals are incredibly important, not just as an ecological support system for many other species, but also in the production of oxygen for the earth, for life to breathe. So getting rid of corals, it's really not going to be good for us. And so there are huge issues here that we need to address. And the IPCC said, let's really get on it. We need to work on this within the next 20 years, 15 to 20 years. We got to get on it. We can't just wait for the next 100 years to play out. But if you need any more reason to consider the importance of implementing sustainable energy and emissions practices? Well, there's a new study out in Nature Plants 
that suggests that by 2099, if the most extreme climate projections go as projected, your beer is going to be really expensive. No! (laughs) Yes, malted barley, which is a crucial ingredient to many beers, is really sensitive to warm temperatures and drought. And these are things that are probably going to increase as a result of climate change. So the yields from barley crops are going to drop, I say by as much as 17% by 2099, compared with the average yield from 1981 to 2010. Co-author Stephen Davis says that that decline could lead to, on average, a doubling of price of beer in some countries. Consumption is also going to drop globally by an average of 16%. And these results are based on computer simulations and global market reactions. Under the mildest climate change predictions, which is like the one and a half degree to two degree warming that the IPCC has been talking about, the barley yields would still go down by at least 3%, and it's going to have a little bit of an increase on those prices for your beer, about 15%. So beer prices are going up, which means maybe fewer people are going to be drinking those microbrews as we move into the future. I think it's funny that they're the end day here, 2099. I mean, that's a (laughs) long time away. I don't know if we're still going to be on microbrews, but I think the point is, is that if it's like you said, if there's not, if like, the coral reef and biodiversity isn't enough to motivate you. Think about your IPA. And people, I guarantee you, will be like, well, that's, well, that's about enough. That's about just about enough. Hey, you guys, we got to do something about this, guys. Right. Hey, guys. Hey, guys. My beer. Hey, guys. My beer. <laughs> My beer. <laughs> uh, and for all of you who like to be healthy and are taking your dietary supplements, you know, to counteract that beer drinking... Or maybe you drank too much beer for a period of time and now you're worried about weight loss and you're taking weight loss supplements. Maybe you shouldn't. Or maybe you should really watch the labeling on your supplements. According to October 12th's JAMA Network Open, researchers have analyzed the FDA's public database of tainted supplements. And from 2007 to 2016, the U.S. FDA flagged nearly 800 over-the-counter dietary supplements as tainted. Want to know what with? You want to know? No, no. Yeah. Pharmaceutical drugs. Some of Yeah. Like steroids. The active ingredient in Viagra and a weight loss drug that was banned in the United States eight years ago. These supplements had been marked primarily for sexual enhancement, weight loss, or muscle building. More than half of American adults have reported taking dietary supplements like vitamins, minerals, and other specialty products. But the number of health problems, injury cases resulting from this supplement use is going up. 2015 study estimated that 23,000 emergency room visits each year are due to health problems related to dietary supplements. And about 2,100 patients out of those are hospitalized annually for symptoms related to heart trouble. That's that Viagra and weight loss drug that has been stuck in there. In 2013, 20% of drug-induced liver injury cases were caused by dietary supplements, and that's up from 7% in 2004. You guys, people, liver damage can be fatal. 
You might need a liver transplant. So maybe look at the labels on your supplements and the study urges that you avoid supplements that quote unquote promise anything. (laughs) Well, I have to tell you my takeaway, the most shocking thing about this is that some of these supplements actually work, even though they don't work because they have any kind of natural ingredient in them because they have farm in them. Yeah. Yeah. I guess the, the really scary thing is that, you know, you're taking drugs that you didn't sign up for. So, wow. But the thing is that you are taking drugs that you you think are going to be one way, but you're not understanding that the FDA does not regulate health supplements the same way that it regulates pharmaceutical drugs. There's really no testing. There's very little regulation. The FDA doesn't have the infrastructure to test all the things in the health supplement market. So it's basically when reports come out that they start testing stuff and Then when they do find something, they try and remove it from the market, but it's not a sure thing. So health supplements just know that they're really not regulated. The health claims are dubious at best. And the manufacturing locations, the facilities where they're manufactured even, are not monitored and regulated as strongly as the pharmaceutical companies and their manufacturing outlets. So you're really taking your health in your own hands by getting into health supplements. I didn't know this until recently, but why is it that you can have something, a chemical or drug or something, a substance, you can sell it without having it approved? You have mm-hmm. to prove that it can hurt you before you, you have to stop selling. What kind of a apparatus is that? Yeah. I mean, with all the carcinogens and chemicals we have in our environment, I can't believe that that's the M.O., in our regulatory system. And this is the same MO for regulating stem cells and stem cell clinics. Yeah. So yep. the thousand or more clinics that are out there right now offering all sorts of stem cell treatments, they're really not regulated. They're being regulated like these health supplements. And it's really after harm occurs that the regulation starts to really kick in. So you got to watch out, everybody. <laughs> And regulators, come on. Let's not make the same mistake. We're in a position to be the authors of a better system here. Let's regulate. Come on, like Warren G said, regulate. Yeah, but you know, there's money to be made. We can't limit business. Don't limit business. You corporate pirate. (laughs) Economy first, health later. (laughs) Uh, Kiki doesn't really feel that way, guys. Just so you know. So I'm taking over. You passing the baton. I got stem cell news. Speaking of stem cells, you ready? Yeah, she's ready. Number one, I'm going to go right to the heart of the matter. You know, we've come a long way with cardiac differentiation of embryonic stem cells, pluripotent stem cells. We've learned a lot. We've had Chuck Murray on the show showing us how they get engraftment and function of these cells and they make the heart stronger after a infarct, heart attack. So yeah, I mean, we've come a long, long way, but we have a long way to go still. And Nathan Palpant's lab from University of Queensland is leading the way in a new story in Cell Stem Cell. In the last couple of weeks, they did single cell transcriptomic analysis of cardiac differentiation, right? So they took pluripotent ESLs day zero, They took them at day two during germ layer specification, day five at a cardiac progenitor phase, and then at committed day 15 cardiac cells, and then definitive committed at day 30, all right? So they had this whole constellation of cardiac cells, and they did a total of 
44,000 cells that were captured above 44,000. And the transcriptome was analyzed in each one of these and a capturing expression of 17,000 plus genes, right? And the bottom line here, what they did here is they kind of illuminated why, and this has been a long-standing problem, as far as we've come with cardiac differentiation, it's not well understood amongst the, the general populace that these cardiomyocytes that we generate in vitro, they lack the cellular diversity, the morphometry, and the functional maturity of adult in vivo derived correlates. And the bottom line there is we're getting kind of immature cardiac myocytes. And this is a huge deal because the few cells that are mature are the ones that integrate and function and the immature ones really don't do so well. So this study was predicated on this idea that we could, you know, by single cell analysis, look within the population amongst the mature cells, what was right in the immature cells, what was lacking and try and kind of unravel what the key regulators of heart cardiac maturation were. And what they did is they identify this non-DNA binding homeodomain protein called HOXP and identify it as a key regulator of heart development, specifically in hypertrophy. Okay, that's the, the expansion of the cell size. So the same number of cells can be in, within an organ and by expanding size, the organ gets bigger. And this is a huge part of cardiac development. What they found is that dysregulation of this HOPX, it underlies the immature state of the pluripotent stem cell-derived cardiomyocytes that we get in vitro. So it's, it's a mechanistic study trying to understand what we got to do to bring these immature cardiac myocytes into a level where they can function as mature, terminally differentiated cells. It pretty much comes down to HOPX, this key regulator of heart development non-DNA binding homeodomain protein, HOPX, Kiki. Makes your heart skip a beat. HOPX, hop to it. Yeah, I love the use of CRISPR also, not necessarily in a gene editing, we're going to change the way humanity is kind of sense, but in this understanding the developmental aspects of organisms. So what are the key initiators? in this cellular development? How do we get from the myos the stemness to adultness? So this is, yeah, this is, I, I love this use of CRISPR here. And then, I mean, seriously though, is this so that we can find the right things to add to the heart? Or, be, I mean, the question still is whether or not there's even stem cells in the heart. There's a bunch of retractions and other things lately. Oh I yeah, yeah, this Anversa study, we, yeah. we haven't talked about, controversial. Yeah, I think, you know, at the end of the day, what they're trying to get at is how we can, it's it's basic, but definitely clinical, translatable. I think, like you said, using all the tools in the kit, CRISPR, the single cell transcriptomics, to try and figure out how we can get better cardiomyocytes. And I feel like if you ask Chuck Murray about this, I don't want to speak for him, but I think he might agree that there's a way that you might be able to apply this to get a more robust cohort or to select for cardiomyocytes that have the highest chance of functioning in a coordinated and robust manner once they're transplanted. So I'm not sure how they're going to apply this, but, um, you know, just a, a brick in the wall, so to speak, patching up hearts, I imagine being the end game there. 
But moving on, some other aspects, CRISPR, using CRISPR in new and creative ways. This is a group uh, by Stanley Chi at Stanford. has a lot of other big hitters on this paper, too. Shen Ding, Marius Wernick. They're using CRISPR as a study in cell stem cell, using CRISPR in an activation screen. Okay, so let me elaborate. There's a background of this is, you know, when you're profiling the kind of gene to cell fate relationship, what gene coordinates cell differentiation and induces cell fate, you rely on this kind of comparative genome-wide gene expression analysis, right, across multiple cell types. For example, you'll say pluripotent cell types are signified by this set of genes, ox, nanog, cardiomyocytes are signified by this set of genes, NKX 2.5. But the causality there in these screens, it has to be done rigorously after the fact. You have to then do these overexpression and knockdown analysis. There's not really a comprehensive, unbiased screen type method for investigating these kind of causal relationships. That is, until now, this is the first application of this type of approach, which is using something we've talked about in the past. It's a CRISPR activation cassette, which is a CRISPR, you know, the guide nucleotide sequences that are also then bound instead of to a Cas9 that nicks, they can be bound to an activating domain. So you can essentially get targeted activation of any gene region, right? And so what the, this group did, led by Stanley Chi, they created a, within this a system in pluripotent stem cells, they created a guide library. This contained 55,000 plus guide RNAs that targeted all the computationally predicted transcription factors and other DNA binding factors in the transcription factor database, okay? There's a total of 2,500 genes, comprehensive, all DNA binding and transcription factors. And so what they were able to do then is they could flood the cells, these pluripotent stem cells, with this guide nuclease library with the activating domain. And then the readout on the back end was things that were promoting neural cell identity, okay? So the idea there is that randomly, whichever cells picked up a random assortment of guide sequences that were specific for whatever gene, and they induced neural identity on the back end when they took these neural cells and did NGS, next generation sequencing, to see what those guys correlated to, they could get an unbiased view of all the guide sequences that were inducing a neural fate and what they were specific for, what gene they were targeting. And the interesting thing here, amongst many others, they found like a novel, a combination of genes EZH2 and MECOM. And these two genes would combine to induce neural fate, genes that hadn't before been implicated in neural cell identity. And these neural cells were confirmed by electrophysiology and they shared very similar transcriptional profiles to endogenous neurons. So it looks like this is an approach that is going to be used. In this case, it was used for neural, but it's really a fundamental approach where you can have this kind of open-end forward screening and identification of novel factors that promote any cell identity. And I think the point here is also that they can be a combinatorial action that you can elucidate. Instead of having a kind of one gene, one function, you can have these random combinations of factors that collaborate to induce neural or other fates. So it's a new approach, a lot of novel insight as well from a group at Stanford, Stanley Cheese Group and Cell Stem Cell Geeky Neural.
Neural. Yeah. Well, the question here, I mean, we know so many traits are, you know, the result of multiple gene interactions. And so I wonder how this is going to elucidate some of those relationships moving forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's the thing. We're getting all this information nowadays in the era of 23andMe. It's hard to kind of reconcile all these different inputs. I think ultimately it's going to take systems like this where you let a bunch of factors work together and you just look at the output on the back end and then try and kind of reverse engineer it. So it's a kind of speaks of things to come similar to this next story. I love this. It's kind of like a bionic man type story. Woman or man, bionic mouse in this case. Peripheral nerve injuries, Kiki. It's like my sciatica, for example, is an example. Well, I don't think your sciatica is really what they're talking about here. <laughs> well, that's what I'm talking about. You know what I'm saying? Anyway, not my sciatica, but peripheral nerve injuries at large represent a significant problem for public health. It's about max 5% of all trauma cases, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it is. It's a lot. All right. I feel that. Uh, for severe nerve injuries, the real thing is here is that there's like no intervention. There's either total ineffective intervention or unsatisfactory motory sensory function after intervention. And there have been a lot of like pharmacological approaches or like using growth factors or maybe trying to reduce inflammation using immunosuppressants or some other kind of like NSAID even. But uh, to be honest, a lot of these have worked in Broden models, countless studies, and few of those have really had a positive clinical impact in humans. On the other hand, direct intraoperative electrical stimulation of injured nerve tissue proximal to the site of repair. Okay, so when you're trying to repair, the, you're in there surgically already. If you pro provide electrical stimulation, it's been shown to enhance and accelerate the functional recovery of the nerve, okay? And this may be a new non-pharmacological, non-growth factor, a bioelectric paradigm that could complement surgical approaches. But the limitation there is obvious. You can only stimulate the nerve electrically while you're in there, surgically. So they're constrained to this intraoperative use, limiting the therapeutic benefit, all right? But not for long. This is a study from John Rogers' group, okay, at North Northwestern University. And what they did is they made a wireless programmable electrical peripheral nerve stimulator. All right. It was built with a collection of these this micro fabricated circuit elements and substrates that are all, get this, entirely bioresorbable and biocompatible. And they showed that this apparatus enhanced the neurogeneration function recovery in rodent models by electrically stimulating this tissue using like a remote outside of the mouse, they could cause the electrical stimulus and they showed it worked. And this is in the sciatic nerve, which is why mm -hmm. it really touched a nerve, so to speak, no pun intended <laughs> uh, with me. But it, it was. <laughs> it was. It was very close, close to my nerve because, you know, it seems like something that's ready for prime time. You know, it goes away. It's like a minor intervention that has, I think, an outsized benefit. So I'm ready to ensheath my sciatic nerve in some remote stimulating devices. If you would be so kind, Dr. Rogers, I would be your first candidate. <laughs> yeah, well, it seems like this kind of strategy could be great because if 
when nerves are injured, it's usually during some traumatic event. And if your body is already, your skin is already cut open and be, and the surgeons are operating, they can look at the nerve, know that it's damaged, or maybe during one of the recovery surgeries where they're trying to fix things, put this kind of a device in, and then they have control, you have control during the physical therapy part of your recovery. Mm -hmm. Maybe it could help. It's still invasive, but not necessarily in the same way as as other nerve regeneration. Yeah. Mildly. Mildly. You know, they go in and they're like, okay, we're going to take this nerve from this place and we're going to transplant it in here. But now we can put these this device in with it and we can it's stimulate and it will help. Yeah. yeah. It's so, going to help you. And then, you know, before long, they're hooking it up to your Apple Watch and yada, yada, that's yada. Right. That's right. Self-help. <laughs> self-help there <laughs> this is exciting this is i it is i don't it's know although exciting. you don't want somebody you don't want necessarily your worst enemy to have control over oh stimulation. boy <laughs> oh no you <laughs> brought it there <laughs> i wasn't even thinking of that. <laughs> <You get hacked>. <laughs> <laughs> that's right where are the hackers for this remote control watch out <laughs> speaking of hack we got a little biohack here a couple of stories but they're in the same vein so i'm putting them both out that last story by the way is in nature medicine these two are as well they're both based on the same idea so i'm just going to summarize uh the first one this is by william parentu's group at uh, chop children's hospital of philadelphia this is in utero crispr mediated therapeutic editing of metabolic genes okay so that's in utero and the other one is from gerald schwank's group from zurich treatment of metabolic liver disease by in vivo genome-based editing in adult mice okay both of these are based on the idea of treating metabolic disease using crispr okay and what they do is in both of them they use adenovirus vectors to encode CRISPR. And the in utero one, the thing that's really notable here, so I'll just go a bit background. What they're trying to do here is they're modifying either PCSK9, which is one gene, or HPD. And PCSK9, they're gonna modify in wild type mice, okay? And this is, there's a precedent for this, that if you can reduce the plasma PCSK9, it reduces cholesterol and it's good for metabolic conditions. And the HPD gene is modified. It's a model, a lethal disease model of hereditary tyrosinemia type one. Okay. So this is a lethal hereditary disease or just like high cholesterol essentially. And what's interesting here is that they injected this adenoviral vector encoding CRISPR into the vitellin vein of an E16 fetus. And they showed that by injecting it into these fetal mice, P16 is like, think like beginning a third trimester equivalent for mice. If they inject it in utero into the vitreline vein of the uterus there, or connecting into the, to the conceptus, they can get very good delivery to the liver and they can get collapse or targeting of the PCSK in wild type mice. And it leads to lasting reduced levels of the serum level of this protein and reduce cholesterol. So this would be a nice model to reduce coronary heart disease risk without serious adverse consequences. And the other one, the HPD targeting, was able to solve and correct this lethal model and rescue enough of the liver in these mice that they are able to survive this deficiency that's normally lethal. So this is two examples of targeting metabolic disease in utero and having a real lasting effect in these mice for the rest of their life. 
and the retained remodeling or targeting of the liver. The other one from Switzerland, what they did there is they corrected the disease phenotype of this adult phenylalanine hydroxylase, PH mice, which is a model for human autosomal recessive liver disease, uh, which is, you know, phenylketonuria, PKU. And what they did here is use a different type of CRISPR here. It's a CRISPR-Cas associated base editors. So they could specifically target the gene CRISPR or any kind of this base editor to a specific part of the gene using these guide sequences and enable conversion of C slash G to T slash A base pairs or vice versa. So it's a way you can switch out these alleles and rescue these kind of misreads that lead to disease. And intravenous injection of this base editor system resulted in total disease correction at the phenotypic level, reaching a physiological blood phenylalanine levels that were non-pathogenic. So this is a case of 63% restoration of enzyme activity, which is unprecedented and totally effective in this case. So in this case, where you're targeting even the adult with an existing condition. So I think two really exciting and innovative applications of CRISPR to target metabolic disease, either before you're born or in adults, watershed technologies, I would say. Absolutely. I mean, the, the biggest thing here is being able to have the off-targeting effects of CRISPR-Cas9 reduced, obviously. But it sounds like, especially in the second study that you mentioned, it worked well enough that the reduction in the disease aspects was worth the benefit, was worth it. Absolutely. Now, you make a really good point there, which I, I totally did not mention. And that there was some, they did address the specificity of these CRISPR constructs a bit. But as you say, a major potential off-target viability is in play there. And as we've learned, as we've reported some of these stories and some of the compensation last episode, we talked about how these uh, leukemias can roar back from the CAR-T therapy, whatever has a front has a back. And I think what you mentioned there is a major backside risk factor that we need to uh, flesh out before we start shooting these into uh, patients to address their potential high cholesterol and cardiovascular disease risk. Yeah. And then secondarily is the adeno-associated virus use. I mean, the, the use of this kind of vector in a mouse, sure, no problem. But <laughs> when you're thinking about putting that into people or into babies in utero, you know. <laughs> yes. And let's, it's like, think, huh. let's think three, four times before we get into that, right? Right. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. But cool, cool stuff, cool stuff. You know, we're on we're in a, a very heady age here. All these things coming together, like you said, adeno. We've got the gene therapy, the cell therapy. So many things. Seems like we're on the cusp of something great. I think so. We're going to cure mice of everything. <laughs> yes, <laughs> our great dream realized. That's the that's the big joke. After all this, the mice. We've been working for them. That's right. I mean, isn't that what Douglas Adams taught us? Yes. <laughs> yes, he did. Yes, he did. All right. Well, it is time now for us to get into our guest interview. But before we do that, I'd love to let you know something from Stem Cell Technologies. Have you ever wondered if the data you get using 2D cultures of cancer cells reflects what happens in the body? Yeah. 3D spheroids. Yeah. Have you moved on to 3D spheroids? I'm not ready. <laughs> not ready. Not All ready. right. Well, 3D spheroids can provide a more physiologically relevant cell-based model for solid cancer research as spheroids mimic the tumor architecture, gradients, and cell-to-cell -cell interactions better than traditional cell cultures. 
whether you're studying tumor biology, tumorigenesis, or metastasis, or assessing new drug candidates, AgroWell plates can help you easily incorporate 3D spheroids into your research. If you're interested in learning more, visit www.stemcell.com cancer dash spheroids. That's stemcell.com slash cancer dash spheroids. AgroWell, eh? Maybe I am ready. Ag- Maybe I'm ready to try something AgroWell, yes. Aggregate well, is that what that comes from? I think so. Mm. I hope so. It better be, or else it's creepy. <laughs> All right. So now on to our interview. Our guest today is Dr. Benjamin Deckel. Dr. Deckel is the head of the Pediatric Stem Cell Research Institute and the director of the Division of Pediatric Nephrology at the Edmund and Lily Safra Children's Hospital, Chaim Sheba Medical Center, Israel. His laboratory takes a multidisciplinary approach, including genetics, genomics, molecular biology, biochemistry, and the development of preclinical murine models to cast light on fundamental problems of developmental biology, tissue regeneration, and cancer. Professor Deckel's anti-cancer stem cell therapeutic approach has sparked a multi-center clinical trial for relapsing pediatric cancer. His lab is now evaluating novel therapeutics aimed at eradicating cancer stem cell function in multiple aggressive tumors. Dr. Deckel, welcome to the Stem Cell Podcast. I'm glad to be here, and I um, want to thank you for this kind invitation to speak over your podcast. You're welcome. Thank you so much. Can we just get started with a little bit of background from you? Can you tell us a little bit more than from my introduction about your research interests and how you came to study them? I'll start with uh, you know, some nostalgia. So I'm a physician scientist, so I'm both a clinical doctor and a scientist, and um, actually I've always been attracted to the kidney in terms of uh, how it functions, how it works, and uh, as a med student, I was uh, uh, drawn to the kidney, and then after I did a pediatric residency, I went into uh, pediatric nephrology, you know, with the aim of treating kids with uh, renal diseases. The clinic actually sparks the uh, scientific innovation and the scientific questions. This is how it works here in my lab and my clinic, where the fundamental questions, and it's supposed to actually, it's, it's in kids, but also in adults, is we want to really figure out new treatments for uh, both chronic renal failure, children with uh, chronic kidney disease. And, uh, you know, these kids, you know, you put them on dialysis, you put them on a renal transplant program. And as a clinician, you don't have too much to offer these uh, children. So this is one main clinical issue, you know, treating kids with end-stage chronic kidney disease. And the other is kids with uh, uh, renal tumors, okay? So these are kids with uh, renal cancers. We treat them, of course, with the hemato-oncology department. And this is not only uh, our clinical duties, because uh, most of these uh, children have their kidneys removed. We see them getting chemotherapy. And again, renal cancer, pediatric renal cancer, is also a major clinical problem. So the inclination or the motivation comes from being these kids. And, you know, if you want to figure out problems, you can use current knowledge, but you might want to really generate new knowledge and to uh, solve uh, problems. So the idea is to use science. And this is, uh, again, this is my scientific hat where I'm not an MD, I'm a PhD, and I go to the lab and there we uh, try 
to give new treatment approaches to both uh, CKD and renal cancer. One uh, major issue is that the MD language and the PhD language not always coalesce. They're not, they're not the same language. So you need to, on a personal view, you need a good training both in, in medicine and science. Unfortunately, I received good training in both. So I can, you know, go to the lab and address the chronic kidney disease problems and the renal tumors problems. And mainly, the unifying theme is to try to understand stem cells in the kidney, because if you understand stem cells in the kidney, you can solve fundamental problems in chronic kidney disease and renal cancer. So, yes, speaking of stem cells in the kidney, I think uh, you would be modest about your relative impact on the field, but you came with a seminal study about 15 years ago in uh, Nature Medicine that showed that there were kidney precursors that could be isolated, uh, progenitors that could form functional nephrons. And that really set the stage for the whole idea of generating kidney tissue in vitro. And you could say it was a real early contributor to the whole tide of regenerative medicine and the idea that stem cells existed that were organ-specific at all and could be made into functional organ-like rudiments in vitro that could be transplanted. So could you, you know, give us a kind of a synthesis of the progress that we've made since then toward that elusive goal of making functional organoids or organ rudiments in vitro and having applying them for therapeutic purposes? Dylan, thank you for mentioning that paper. And um, I think it's a nice starting point for the whole field of uh, what we call renal regenerative medicine, okay? Because it was back in, in two or three, what we did is we started off transplanting embryonic rudiments. These were embryonic rudiments derived from human fetuses, actually. We, you know, we were able to collect aborted human fetuses and from pig embryos. And what we did is the following. We were able to really pinpoint which time of gestation one can pick up these embryonic rudiments you know, these embryonic kidney rudiments and put them into mice and have them grow into functional miniature kidneys. And these functional miniature kidneys actually generated urine. It was dilute urine because these rudiments that we put in into mice, these human mouse chimeras or these pig mouse chimeras, never actually, they don't really mature to generate a concentrated urine. You know, you need to have your concentration ability functioning to generate, I would say, quality urine. But this paper actually told us the following, you know, if you can put and grow nephrons in vivo, if you use the right uh, tissue. But the major caveat of this study was that the embryonic tissue rudiments we put into mice, they sort of grow independently of the adjacent mouse kidney, okay? You can even put them under the, the ear or in the omentum and they grow and they generate some urine, but remember, you need to really have a functional benefit on uh, renal function because it's not enough to grow a kidney. You want to make a meaning for the patient and sort of get their GFRs. GFR is a renal functional parameter, so you want to correct biochemical parameters in the uh, patient. So we had these growing kidneys concept. We put in the, um, the tissue embryonic rudiments and they grew in the Nephrons were amazingly generated in these, but they were sort of generated like uh, outside of the, independently of the adjacent uh, kidney. And what was 
apparent was this. We need to try, it was in two or three papers, we put the entire rudiment inside. So we told ourselves, can we not do tissue transplantation, but rather try to pick the stem cells out of the human embryonic kidney rudiment, you know, do a experiment where you pinpoint the stem cells and you get them, sort them out of the embryonic rudiment, culture them, you put them in culture, expand them and put them back into mice. The question was, can you actually not do an embryonic tissue transplantation experiment, but rather can you take out the stem cells from the rudiment and then use the cells derived from the rudiment to regenerate kidneys? So we had the two or three paper, we had the nature medicine paper, but then it took us a long time to derive what we call nephron stem cells from these uh, rudiments. And one of the problems was that we didn't have good markers to derive nephron stem cells from these embryonic kidney rudiments, from these tissues that we uh, take out, we collect from embryos. And we had this really hard time to figure out what are the right biomarkers to sort out the uh, nephron stem cells uh, from. There was this paper, but then there were an entire, I would say, a comprehensive studies just looking for markers in the fetal kidneys, you know, just looking out for stem cell markers in the fetal kidneys and trying to understand what markers actually denote specific cells within the uh, human fetal kidneys. And I have to tell you, Dylan, that the idea, one point was to go into renal cancers, pediatric renal cancers. You can ask me why pediatric renal cancers? Why study pediatric renal cancers if you want to use and look for stem cells in the uh, human fetal kidney and these embryonic kidney rudiments? And the answer is this, because actually pediatric renal cancers are filled with malignant renal stem cells, okay? What is a pediatric renal tumor, a Wilms tumor? It's sort of aberrant differentiation of a nephron stem cell. So the nephron stem cells, they don't differentiate, but rather they proliferate and accumulate. So if you look into a Wilms tumor, it's a pediatric renal cancer, the most common pediatric renal cancer, you actually look at a load of human renal or human nephron uh, stem cells, and Wilms tumors can actually give you a good idea on nephron stem cells in general and their uh, makeup in the normal human fetal kidney. We had the, again, the Nature Medicine paper, and we looked for markers, stem cell markers in the human fetal kidney, but then we started looking also in, in Wilms tumors, and luckily, we did the first transcriptome. This was back in, it was in 2006, there was a microarray experiment, and we actually generated human Wilms tumors in mice. We had these PDX, these patient-derived xenografts in mice, and these Wilms tumors grow and grow and grow and grow, and they accumulate nephron stem cells as they grow in mice. So we did this microarray experiment, and what happened is that it gave us wonderful data on how the nephron stem cell looks. I mean, what are its surface markers, what pathways are activated, the wind pathway, and, and some polycom group genes. But it was sort of a nice trick to look at nephron stem cells, because nephron stem cells in the human fetal kidney are in a specific region. They're not a lot. So uh, we went to the case, to the extreme case of a tumor, which has a lot of nephron stem cells. We looked into it, and then we went back to the human fetal kidney. 
and we looked at human tissues, but at the same time, there were very uh, strong groups looking for, you know, from doing my studies and analyzing with lineage tracing some nephron stem cell populations in the uh, embryonic mouse kidneys. These studies were helpful in denoting important transcription factors that actually specify the nephron stem cells, but our studies were very useful in pinpointing markers that are on the surface of the nephron stem cells that allows you to sort it out from the tissue. So actually, we started with embryonic rudiment tissue transplantation, but then moved to isolating both normal and malignant renal stem cells from human fetal kidneys and Wilms tumors. And once we were able to do that, I want you to, to understand that the good stem cells, those derived from the human fetal kidneys, can be used to regenerate a diseased kidney, while once we studied the malignant renal stem cells and pediatric renal tumor in a Wilms tumor, we had the idea of the makeup or what the malignant renal stem cells expresses, and then we could devise targeted therapies against the uh, malignant renal stem cells. So it's an interesting concept. On one side, you get out the good stem cells from the human fetal kidney to treat to induce kidney regeneration once you put the cells into a kidney disease model. On the other hand, the malignant renal stem cells, you don't want to use them. You want to eradicate them because they're what we call the bad stem cells. And here you need to use what we call targeted therapies to try and get the malignant renal stem cells and the, uh, eradicate the cancer because, you know, the malignant renal stem cells are the cells that fuel the cancer. So it might be hard to follow, but we, we work with two different models and they helped us understand both regeneration, carcinogenesis, and how you might use bad and good stem cells to treat disease. If I'm following you, then we've got you know the disease state that's telling us about the healthy state, the healthy state that can also inform us about the disease state. And you're looking at these markers on the surface of the cells. Did you find any or what kind of differences did you find in the markers on these cells? Were the markers you're talking about just absolutely specific to the cancerous disease state cells? Or are they found also on the healthy cells? And if so, is there the possibility of activating in healthy cells these markers to lead to the regeneration? Is that what you're in implying here? Yeah, so that's a great question, of course. Interestingly, the biomarkers on the surface of the cells are identical. You know, both the normal nephron stem cells and the malignant ones express very similar surface marker molecules, such as NCAM1, CD56. They're devoid of CD133, you know, the early stem cells. They're devoid of APCAM. This is markers of epithelial differentiation. But the malignant stem cells, they are mutated, okay? There's something in their genome that goes wrong and they accumulate and they, you know, lack differentiation. But the biomarkers on the surface were uh, very similar, and even the transcription factors, such as 6-2 or cell one or these are classical renal lineage-specific renal stem cell mark, uh, transcription factors are, were identical. But the idea is, well, at least in our hands, the idea is not to activate the cells in the tissue, but rather to start sorting them out and expanding them so they could work and integrate into a diseased kidney. I want to use the diseased kidney as a scaffold for kidney regeneration. I don't want to grow a whole new kidney. 
I call these, these are, you know, maybe this would be, people are claiming to print kidneys and all that. I don't see us printing a whole new kidney on it, more than 20 uh, different cell types in our lifetime. I do see the, the use of our cells integrating into a diseased kidney. Because I want to explain something. When you do the embryonic rudiment transplantation uh, studies, the tissue transplantations, they grow irrespective of the, you know, the host tissue. They don't integrate. But if you put the cells, the, the nephron stem cells, into a diseased kidney, they integrate. They generate renal structures. They can influence renal function. And actually, we showed that in an EMBO paper. It was, took us a long time to get out the cells, but there was a 2013 publication where we were able to sort out the human fetal renal stem cells and then show that they can generate a functional benefit in a model of progressive renal injury in a mouse model once you uh, transplant the cells and the kidneys of you know these human fetal renal stem cells in, into the mouse kidneys. So we don't use molecules that activate the stem cells in situ, but rather try to take the stem cells out and expand them and, and, and show that they can uh, integrate and uh, generate renal tissue and have a functional benefit on renal injury. In terms of what we call biochemical parameters, which is the most important, urea and creatinine and GFR, these are the parameters we follow patients with biochemical parameters. We use a lot of cell therapy experiments to show that our cells are functionally working, that they're integrating, generating renal structures and having a positive influence on renal function in mice. So your question is, if I understood it correctly, I think you can also take the, uh, what you call your approach, where you, if you know the stem cells, you can find molecules that would activate these cells in vivo. I can see, yeah, there's this idea of in the chronic kidney disease kind of infiltrating with healthy cells that you've expanded or repaired or what have you. But then there's the, also the other half of that, which is targeting the um, cancer or the tumor. And I think maybe this is a good segue for your recent study that was uh, in uh, Cell Reports, I believe. Is that right? About the uh, yeah, yeah. malignant yeah. rhabdoid tumor. So just like to very briefly... Sum it up for our listeners. It seemed, in, in my understanding, as you were doing kind of serial xenografts, you would xenograph yeah. these primary tumors over and over into mice and thereby kind of recapitulate this evolution and expansion of a cancer stem cell that was more, you know, prevalent in the, the later stage graphs. And I thought this was a really unique approach because what you saw then was the, the coincidence of these markers that seemed to emerge as the cells, uh, cancer stem cell phenotype emerge, and then to use that to target. So can you tell us about this alternative approach? Like you started out saying, you know, your interest in the field was governed by treating chronic kidney disease with regenerative approaches, but also trying to address yeah. these, you know, nasty kidney tumors in, in pediatric patients. So tell us about how you're using that approach to uh, address the uh, pediatric cancer. It all started, again, with us looking at nephron stem cells in Wilms tumor. And this was the uh, most prevalent kidney uh, tumor in children. And it started out with generating, you know, what's interesting is that these are pediatric tumors, so you don't have a lot of these. You know, it's not like a colon carcinoma or breast carcinoma where, you know, you can get a lot of uh, samples from uh, colleagues. And we were generating 
what we call these patient-derived xenografts of the uh, Wilms tumors. And apparently, it was the observation in the lab, we can really enrich for the progenitor population once we started propagating the tumors in mice and, you know, doing this multiple passage approach, you would start off with a number of nephron stem cells. It could be, you know, or blastema. These are undifferentiated stem cells. And you have them in a very uh, small proportion. And then you start passaging the uh, tumor in mice. And what we observe is that eventually the entire tumor becomes blastema or becomes undifferentiated. And the markers for the stem cells go up. And it's quite amazing that you start off with 10 cancer stem cells, with 10 uh, uh, malignant uh, renal stem cells, and you finish off with millions. And this just gave us the idea that when you use pediatric tumors where, you know, they can proliferate very strongly in as PDX, as patient-derived xenografts, if you do multiple passaging, at the end, you can, you know, once you go to the high passage, you have the, uh, a fraction of what we call a stem-like tumor in mice. You know, you start off with a, a malignant tumor, but then you generate a, a, what we call a high stemness cancer cell tumor, where you have practically, you enrich for that, to the fact that, uh, I mean, all of the cells in your tumor are, you know, operate as cancer stem cells. So the idea was to move on from Wilms tumor, which is, I would say, you know, it could be very nasty if you have a relapse, and it's very sad if you have a relapse. But for instance, malignant rhabdoid tumors are, they're more deadly, and they're, it's very hard to deal with them for the clinician. And most children actually die from these uh, MRTs. We did the same trick with it as we did with Wilms tumor with the multiple passaging and what was, you know, and here we took it to even to much more extreme. We can really, we generated a, a even much more a hyper malignant uh, tumor with a load of, uh, of cancer stem cells. It was even uh, more aggressive than, than the Wilms tumor. And uh, then we did the, uh, what we call the transcription analysis and we, we do sequential transcriptomes and we can really define uh, markers for cancer stem cell behavior without self-sorting, just by, uh, uh, you know, enriching for the uh, cancer stem cell population. And the thing about rhabdoid is that it disclosed different molecules for, than Wilms. For instance, in Wilms, we found NCAM1 is uh, an important molecule to target. And this is what clinical trial uh, for Wilms tumor is about with the anti-NCAM1 uh, medication. But for, Wilms, for uh, uh, rhabdoid tumors, we found different molecules. And this is now uh, our aim is to try to target the molecules we discovered from for uh, the uh, malignant rhabdoid tumor. This is another branch working on, on cancer stem cells and pediatric solid tumors using the multiple passage approach where you reach for uh, cancer stem cells and you find out things you don't see in the primary tumors, okay? This is uh, very intriguing because the molecules are dormant in the primary tumors or they're in a very low frequency. And once you reach for cancer stem cells and your patient derives xenografts, you can find new molecules that uh, are relevant for cancer progression. And thinking about how all of this works together, you know, you're working on the the clinical side as well as the research side. Where do you see all this going? I mean, there's a huge question at this point in time uh, here in the United States as to, you know, how stem cell research is actually leading into therapeutic applications and how close are we getting to actually being able to apply some of these findings to the real world to help these pediatric patients? This is a great question because it really has to do with us trying to translate our findings into real medications. 
at the end, we want to help out. We want to discover things in the lab, but you want to make a, a, a statement in patients. And this is, I think, the, uh, the most incredible achievement of a scientist that one can show that his, I would say, basic or translation findings work in patients. And I want to answer this very clearly. So when you think about it, in terms of stem cell therapies, you can, at least for the kidney, let's take kidney as an example. You have, I would say, two parties. One party says, you know, I can use extra renal stem cells to cure the kidney. Okay, I can take fat tissue, I can take bone marrow tissue, and derive the same as in chymal stem cells. I can take blood stem cells and sort of try to regenerate kidneys with these stem cells. But these stem cells are types are sort of easy to uh, pick out. Easy sort of to derive uh, um, mesenchymal stem cells and blood stem cells is it's relatively easy. So what I'm saying is that these stem cells, they don't form renal tissue, okay? Unless you, they don't form renal tissue. It, it applies for other uh, tissues also. It's important to, you know, I hope that our, our listeners actually take this message home because they might repair the kidney, I don't know, in some sort of mechanisms, but they don't generate new renal tissue or they don't generate nephrons or nephron parts because they're not in the kidney lineage, okay? So this is one party or approach, which I personally think that one should use cells within the lineage you're trying to cure. You mean if you want to cure kidney disease, okay, you want to use renal lineage cells, okay? You want to use renal lineage stem cells. And where would you derive renal lineage stem cells from? You have four options. You can go to a, a human embryonic kidney. You can go to a pluripotent embryonic stem cells or an IPS and differentiate it into a kidney organoid, okay? And try to take from the kidney organoid nephron stem cells to treat the kidneys with the, try to, to induce kidney regeneration. You can go to the human fetal kidney just like we did and treat the kidneys. Or you can go try to look for uh, uh, stem cells in the human adult kidney, which is the human adult kidney they don't possess stem cells that actually persist in, in embryonic that are that are harbor that are in the human fetal kidneys. The human adult kidney has different method of you know human adult kidney doesn't grow nephrons. So what it really human adult kidney employs differentiated cells that clonally derive in specific regions. It's much more complicated. It's, the human adult kidney has these local cups. You know that. The regeneration process is within uh, cells in the nephron. It's not like uh, human fetal uh, kidney stem cells. These are different cells with different qualities. We don't have the ability to induce them back to a stem-like state. Yeah, so you can try and do that. But actually, if you can go into the human adult kidney and try to uh, sort of get these, I call these local progenitors. They're not multipotent stem cells. They're local progenitors that reside in different segments of the nephron. You can get these cells. So if you go... So you have actually, you know, three approaches to get the renal lineage cells. Or you can do a transdifferentiation experiment, you know, reprogramming experiment where you can take a skin cell and reprogram it uh, to the renal lineage. So what I'm saying is that the part, you know, I talked about extra renal cells, but then I think that the, the other, uh, I would say, party or approach is to use cells that form renal kidney tissue. And these are cells that uh, are derived from kidney organoids, you know, from a pluripotent kidney organoids, from human fetal kidney or from human adult kidney. You don't have other sources. And I think that the most attractive approach, I would say the most practical approach 
is to derive it from your own kidneys, from your own adult kidneys. These would be the most, I would say, it would be hard because, you know, these are adult cells, so they're more differentiated and they're more, they're less prone to expansion. But this is, if you think of practical renal regenerative medicine, if you go to the adult kidney, this would actually be an autologous cell, renal cell therapy approach, okay? Could use your own cells. If you go to the fetal kidney, you know, this would be allogeneic cells. You can go to the IPS and the, you can go to uh, unibryonic uh, stem cells and then differentiate them, and that would be an allogeneic cell. Or you can go to an IPS, that would be an autologous cell. So, given this constellation of options, I guess simply okay. put, so it's been 15 years since you had your seminal work that kind of introduced the principle. I hate to ask this question of anybody, and I would hate to answer it, but I'm going to ask. I'm sorry, Dr. Deco. Another 15 years from now, do you think that we will have an option for kidney regeneration in at least clinical trial, mid to late stage? Look, um, <laughs> no, I want to be very cautious. I want to be very right. cautious, but Good. I I'm think that, that now, okay, so I'm saying this. In our lifetime, I don't think that we will be printing a whole new kidney. You can get the miniature kidneys, you know, these miniature human fetal kidneys you can, can now generate from an IPS cell. These are small miniature kidneys, and you can do, you can transplant them in, in vivo in mice and see what we saw in two or three. You get some growth of these uh, rudiments in vivo, and you get glomeruli, and you get a small kidney, which doesn't mean a lot to, I would say, to the kidney function. This is a basic development that still is not relevant to patients, but the approaches of using the adult kidney as cell therapy are starting to take center, and these could be implemented much faster than 15 years. At least we grow human adult kidney cells as 3D nephrospheres, and these cells are collagen. So you would, you know, going to the clinic with these cells, it would be a much easier task than using embryonic stem cells. So I hope that at least our approach will be in a phase one in uh, 2020 with the question of, can we use our own autologist kidney cells to regenerate disease kidney? And I hope we'll be able to you know, recruit our first patients in, in 2020. And this won't be, again, a growing new kidney from scratch. It would be trying to halt the progression of a progressive renal injury in patient. You know, this would be a much more practical goal because here you won't need to grow a whole new kidney. You want your cells to integrate and influence the diseased kidney. So I hope that in 2020, we'll start a phase one in Israel based on our approach with the adult kidney cells. I want to use the adult kidney cells because they are the safest cells. They're autologous, there's no immunological barriers, and we can get them in, in high numbers in the Petri dish. So uh, to your question, I don't think it will take uh, another 15 years. I don't know if the clinical trials will work, but certainly it would answer the question of can you halt the progression of CKD in patients and prevent a patient going from CKD into end-stage uh, renal disease? Dylan, I want you to understand that if a patient is on CKD, takes medication, only medication, if he's in end-stage renal disease, he has to do dialysis four times a week. It's a different story. 
It's a different mm-hmm. clinical scenario. And we want patients not to hit dialysis or need a renal transplant because then their lives are much uh, uh, better. So as we get to the end of the interview, when we do interviews with people, we love to ask a final question. And we would love to know from you, what advice do you have for young investigators who are graduate students, maybe postdocs, eyeing a scientific career? Uh, What advice do you have for them based on your own experiences? Come to the Deco Lab. Great advice. Come to Israel and the Deco Lab. You know, CKD, there's absolutely, there hasn't been one FDA approved medication, you know, in a, such a long time. Well, there's now something for polycystic uh, kidney disease, but, you know, this is a field waiting for innovation, you know, and this, this, this is a world epidemic in terms of uh, people having diabetes and hypertension. So I would say this this is the. First of all, you need inclination. You need to feel it in your heart that this is the thing you want to do. If you, it has to come from inside, you know, the passion and the, uh, it has, you have to feel it. Just, you know, you have, you have to fall in love with it. So if you have the inclination and you've fallen in love, you have to pick sort of uh, questions that are, you know, it feels that you have where, you know, you can make a huge meaning in them. You know, you really start by, you know, reading a lot. But if you go to labs and you hear seven hours, you can see where I would say that major caveats or major holes that you can uh, contribute in. So I assume that you're intelligent and all that. You should know to pick right the questions you're asking. And this is one of the uh, reasons we went into nephrology. Because, you know, I and the the people in the lab, you know, we were under the assumption that there's not too much out there for uh, these very harsh patients with the huge morbidity. That's our motivation. For the young uh, graduate students, I would say pick the, the uh, right field and have the physicality of a marathon marathon runner, okay? This is always a long trip. This is always a marathon. It's never easy. You know, you have to unravel and unravel and unravel and continue with your stuff. Have the patience and sort of the stamina of, of a marathon runner. Get training, graduate students. Yeah. Start the training. Yeah, I mean, get ready. Yeah, 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 get ready. You ne- yeah, I think it's fascinating. It's so good to be fascinated by what you work on. Dr. Deckel, thank you so much for joining us today on the Stem Cell Podcast. It was wonderful getting a chance to speak with you about your work. Thanks for having me. I hope we will do it again in 10 years, and then the uh, clinical trial will be already out there. I hope so, too. That would be wonderful. The phase three. Phase three. Very, yeah, hopefully very positive results. Exactly. Everyone out there, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Stem Cell Podcast. Please be sure to send us your thoughts and questions on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or email info at stemcellpodcast.com. Don't forget to take our survey at stemcellpodcast.com and be sure to tune in for our next episode. All right, Daylon. That concludes episode 128 of the Stem Cell Podcast. Thank you for another interesting show.